Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University, and we're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we're really excited to uh, have Dr. Nita Huja on today. But first, we'd like to check in on current hot topics in health and healthcare. And one of those topics, if you can believe it, uh, is phenylephrine, a topic that other people may not know much about, but you tweeted about it. And literally on the same day, my father said to me, I want to know what Harlan thinks about phenylephrine. I kid you not. That's exactly what he said. And I said, it's a good thing because I think he's willing to talk about it on the podcast. So tell us well, your I thoughts am. on this. I am willing to talk about it. But also the listeners should know that this is something that's interested you for maybe, you know, a couple decades. So you probably know a lot more. But anyway, let's just let's just frame this for everyone. Yeah. So an advisory panel to the Food and Drug Administration got together and was pondering this issue about a very common cold medication, an over-the-counter cold medication. And they unanimously uh, voted that this common decongestant ingredient, phenylephrine, uh, is ineffective. Ineffective. I mean, it's you sometimes get these unanimous votes, but but you know this was like I think uh, slam dunk. Uh, sorry, folks. This drug that a lot of people are buying over the counter to help them with cold symptoms probably doesn't work. And the FDA will likely, now that now this was advisory, but the FDA often follows the advice of an advisory committee like this and would, I don't know, result in the FDA, if they follow through on this, pulling, I don't know what, hundreds of products from the store shelves throughout the nation. So just to be clear, phenylephrine is found in a wide range of cold and flu medications, including Sudafed PE, Benadryl Allergy, D+, Sinus, and Vicks, Dayquil, cold and flu relief. I mean, you almost can't find a cold medication that didn't have this stuff in it and, and claim that that's the decongestant that you know will help you. It's, it's in everything. It's every, almost every cold medicine that says the word decongestant on it includes phenylephrine. Like they have different things in it for different symptoms, but the one for decongestion is almost always phenylephrine. And just to be clear, Howie, this phenylephrine, you know, lots of people have heard about pseudoephedrine, right? So like, and yes. I think people get this all confused in their heads too. I don't phenylephrine. Well, is phenylephrine the thing that raises your blood pressure and you can make meth from? No, that's, that's not it. It's pseudoephedrine. And when it started to get hard to buy, when you go into the drugstore and you've got to ask someone to unlock a thing and show your ID and go through all this rigmarole to buy a product with pseudoephedrine, that's because that drug can be used to make meth. So basically, you know, the companies went to something that was people could just slip into their into their basket, you know, without having to go through all of that. And they they pulled in this phenylephrine. But the problem was it had never really been shown to be effective. And and so it, I think it goes back to like 1976, you know, where, 76. where you know, this stuff yep. was coming out. Yeah, no. So a couple of quick things that I think are funny for our listeners is pseudoephedrine, pseudoephedrine is the chemical name, is what was the reason for why we called it pseudoephed. But soon as this happened, what you described related to meth, the Sudafed brand name decided, well, we have to have a Sudafed product that's not behind the counter, so we'll just put phenylephrine in. So there's Sudafed's a brand name. You can buy Sudafed branded phenylephrine, or you can buy Sudafed branded Sudafedrin. And so it's not that surprising that people don't even realize that what they used to use as Sudafedrin has now become phenylephrine without even noticing it. You know, basically, they sound kind of alike. I don't think people 
noticed. But you know, there's lots of questions about a lot of other drugs now too, Howie. And and I know that you're a big fan of pseudoephedrine. You, I mean, in other words, you you believe it works. I mean, even as it can cause elevated blood pressure and can cause these side effects. But I mean, you believe it works anyway. But I'm of the mind that you know, like. I don't know. My wife is a big fan of Mucinex and I keep telling her, it's like, you know, these drugs have not been subjected to the same level of rigor as your typical prescription-based drugs. And in knowing whether they work, who do they work in? When do they work best? What's the effect size in them? And, and, and how do people experience them? It, it's just something that's sort of beyond the evidence that we've really got. And most of these have been studied in very rudimentary ways, often a long time ago, and maybe in labs that to be honest, could have been biased. I mean, you know, they, this thing with the phenylephrine in 1976, there's at least some reports that the places where it was found to be effective was a single lab that didn't wasn't concordant with a lot of other places. The Atlantic article that came out this week was sort of commenting on this. And so, you know, maybe it's time for us to take a step back and think about the evidence base because billions of dollars spend on these drugs. People are expecting to do something good. And we honestly don't have the kind of evidence that we need to know, you know, whether they're truly effective. Yeah. And, and it goes to what, you know, in my class we talked about yesterday that a lot of healthcare is not fully informed. Your career has been committed to answering the questions, the hard questions. And we still like, we, we need thousands of Harlan Krumholtzes to answer no, these no, questions. But but what one thing I did when I was on the the Board of Governors of the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, especially in the beginning, I tried to turn the organization towards doing a large number of randomized trials on products that were specifically designed or, or sold as helping people feel better. So I said pain, cold symptoms, flu symptoms, uh, insomnia. I mean, there's a whole range of drugs. E even we need more and better evidence around depression. Because, you know, the, there's still questions about the SSRIs and whole range of things. Tamiflu, the country stockpiled $10 billion of Tamiflu for a flu pandemic. There were questions about the quality of those, those studies. And I felt the reason you could do a lot of trials quickly is because the endpoint was a patient-reported endpoint. Do I feel better? And these are, for people listening, it's not an event. You're not waiting for a heart attack to occur. You're acting, everybody can contribute information that goes into the endpoint. And it's a continuous endpoint. It can go from zero to 100. And that statistically enables you to have better power in the study, able to do the study with smaller numbers of people. And then what I really wanted to do was, let's do it in younger people and older people. Let's do it in men and women. Let's do it in people with a lot of comorbidity and people not. So we can really fill out the knowledge risk. I couldn't get them to move in this direction, but I'm still hopeful one day maybe they will. Certainly NIH should be doing this too. Let's hope. It's not that expensive to do these things, by the way. Yeah. So, yep, people should stay tuned. We'll see what happens, see if they pull all that stuff off the shelf. But let, hey, let's get to our guest. We have a wonderful guest today. Dr. Nita Huja is Yale New Haven Hospital's Chief of Surgery, the Chair of the Department of Surgery, and the William H. Carmel Professor of Surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Huja runs the Yale Cancer Center as Associate Director and specializes in treating soft tissue sarcomas and cancers of the connective tissue. She is renowned for her peritoneal cancer treatment, as well as using world-class technologies such as heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy to treat her patients. Dr. Huja has a relentless focus on patient care and patient service. 
Her research is internationally acclaimed, and much of her most influential work has focused on epigenetic cancer therapy research and translational epigenetics. In addition to her research, she's an exceptional leader of one of the largest surgery departments in the country. She's an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine. She graduated with a bachelor's degree in biology and mathematics from the University of Maryland. She obtained her MD from Duke and completed her residency and fellowship at Johns Hopkins and subsequently received her MBA from the Cary School of Business at Johns Hopkins University. So first of all, I want to just welcome you to the podcast. And I want to go in and ask you probably the most complicated question first, which is, what is epigenetics? Because your contributions are legion, but I will be honest with you, I knew very little about it until I started getting ready for today's segment. Well, first of all, really glad to be here with both of you on this podcast. It's an impressive um, repertoire of people you've had. Um, Epigenetics, the way I think about it, the word means if you break it down, in addition to genetics. So genetics, we all know it's our alphabet soup. That is our DNA. It's four letters. It's A, T, C, G. Um, So that's genetics. And typically when genes go bad or mutate, the letters change. And those are permanent effects. You can't reverse them. But genes can, you know, make stuff. They make protein. And So there are ways of regulating that beyond genetics, and that's what epigenetics is. It's a way of thinking of what is the difference between hardware, which is our genetics, and what is software, which is epigenetics. And and epigenetics then kind of allows us to turn our genes on and off depending on things like environmental exposures, our diet, things like stress. And it's as the effects of those epigenetic changes are equivalent to genetics but here's the zinger those effects in the laboratory can be reversed whereas we can't change our code once changed the dna code you can't change it again so the software can be manipulated the hardware not so and and so just one follow-up point this potentially leads to treatments for cancers and other diseases, correct? That's my understanding from looking at some of your work. Absolutely. I mean, when I started in this field, I was I was in training. I was a postdoc in the 90s, and I heard about this field. And I, like you, had never heard about this. But, you know, the aha moment was I'm like, oh, this is reversible. How cool is that? And even in, like, the 20th century, right, like back in the 90s, Um, We could do this in the laboratory. We could turn genes on, which had been turned off because of this epigenetic changes. So the light bulb went off and a dream came like, can we start to treat cancers in the future with this? And that was a lot of my journey in, in Baltimore to sort of start to do this and work with other teams on that. And we're so lucky to have you at Yale. Uh, It's just uh, remarkable the breadth of your experience and expertise. But uh, yeah, by the way, just on the code, right? With CRISPR today, though, we can actually change the, the code, right? I mean, people will be going in and snipping out yes. our yes, code and can. switching yes, it out, can. right? Absolutely. So, uh, but, but, yes. but we'll see. Not yet, not yet actualized. One thing I wanted to ask you is, I know you're one of the world's experts in what people are calling liquid biopsies. And for people listening, this is, we think about biopsies of tissues where we go in and take a piece of tissue and try to characterize it. But these liquid biopsies are basically 
blood tests, which can give us profiles or signatures that can suggest the presence of diseases like cancer. And there's been a lot of controversy about this. Grail, a company that got a lot of attention, is, is, is struggling. There's a lot of startups in the world who are trying to make uh, progress in this area. Will it be possible, do you think, one day for us just to go in for a preventive visit, have them draw blood from us and tell us that, you know, in two years or three years with more traditional methods, we would be able to detect this cancer. We can now detect it far in advance. Are you optimistic about this now, uh, given some of the challenges? With it? Fundamentally, yes. I think, you know, the thing with science is the more you learn, the more you know you don't know. <laughs> and, and liquid biopsies, in my sense, are in that. Because although DNA is shed, you know, many years ago, we didn't know that things were shed even by tiny tumors. And now we know actually that cancers are shedding stuff in our blood, in our sputum, in our urine. The problem is, of course, we don't know where it's coming from, oftentimes. Uh, we don't know um, that, you know, when a cancer changes from a non-cancerous but ultimately abnormal to cancer in many diseases. So I think those things will fundamentally happen. I have a lot of faith in, in human knowledge. I think realistically, we often have think the timeline is perhaps faster than we think it is, but think about things we can diagnose on CAT scans, right? In, in the last few, you know, 20 years, we can see one millimeter things. Whereas I remember being early on as an intern and although we had CAT scans, our cuts were centimeters apart and the precision of a CAT scan. So technology improves. That is where, you know, this is in some ways the 20th and 21st century seeing how fast technology is improving. I think where we struggle is that there's ambiguity and when that ambiguity and confusion happens, people want to go quickly to easy answers and we just need to be comfortable that we'll learn and we'll make some will often move ahead, but sometimes we go backwards a little bit. And I think the grail and the venture capital are probably resettling and we'll get there. My work has been more slower just because I'm more academic and has been slower. Well, you're rigorous and we appreciate that. Well, one thing though that I've heard is maybe these will find their best utility in cancer recurrences. Yes. So if they're focused in on people who've had cancer, now we're trying to monitor and surveil whether or not there's any recurrence and whether we have to go in. Do, do you think that that might be the place where these at least find their first application? You know, that's obviously the easier space because you don't have to diagnose the cancer. You just have to, you know, now you know where the cancer is coming from. So if you see some abnormality in the liquid biopsy, and there are many different marks you can check, you're really just saying, okay, the cancer is coming back. And there's some nice signals um, that these liquid biopsies pick it up a little faster than say a CAT scans or uh, the other fancy scans. Now, there's a bigger question. Yes, I think it's easier to do it in the surveillance stage, which is what you're saying. You know you have a cancer, I'm going to follow you along, and now I can pick up a recurrence. The cynic in me then says, so what if? What if you pick up a cancer two weeks or two months earlier? Does it fundamentally make a difference. So yes, we can show a utility for it, but will this make a difference in our patient's life? And that's perhaps a, being a clinician scientist, I think I always wear my hat as a clinician first, as a doctor first, and think about what does my patient want? My patient only wants to live longer, right? And to me, that question then becomes, and that we don't know, 
Like we'll pick you up. Oh my God, I'm going to call you an honorary outcomes researcher because yeah. that's the whole point. Which is I, at the I, end I, of the I'm day, so honored. Oh my God. Uh, at the end of the day, have we made a difference in people's lives? Oh my gosh. I'm so happy. That's where it's at. But let me just say this, you know, there are, as Harlan said, like you're a quadruple threat and it is extremely unusual to find somebody who is a rock star in the clinical realm and in the uh, research realm uh, and in the educational realm and still be able to want to lead and to lead successfully. You went ahead and went and got an MBA uh, just a few years before you came to Yale. What prompted you to do that? And can you tell us your thoughts on leadership in medicine? So perhaps a little anecdote uh, in why I did my MBA. I would tell you, you know, if I'm going to give the nice answer, well, it was all planned because learning those skills is so critical. As in life, I think you're in the right space at the right time. And I had just started taking more administrative roles was learning. I was a rookie learner, but, um, you know, bringing my scientific mind to administration, I was learning the ropes. And I have a younger sister who's a surgeon and her boss wanted her to do an MBA. And she came up to me and said, you know, Hopkins is a new program. Why don't you come and do this? It'd be a great experience for us um, to do this together. And I think they're interested in more physician leadership. So in some, you know, being you know, sort of facetious, that was perhaps the thing. But of course, um, there was a decision in the back of my mind that um, a desire that physicians should lead. And to do that, we need to understand what our peers, who our administrators have trained. And getting that training is important because clearly I had to pay tuition. It wasn't cheap. Um, so there was a, um, and, and that story was meant to be slightly facetious, but um, it, it is that it is important for more physician leaders to be there in medicine. The sense of what we see in healthcare, and you know this, or both of you know this, it's complex. So uh, who knows this better? We are there day and night. And that decision to make an MBA is one I've never regretted. Um, I worked with very smart people who were not in medicine and understood factors, you know, things that I know Harlan, and you know really well, but perhaps me being the lab scientist didn't appreciate that how much of our um, societal factors can impact healthcare delivery. And I think that was a light bulb. And since then, it's something I've really gone after. And perhaps the decision to come here to Yale six years and take on an administrative role is to talk about more physician leaders who can really balance and think about how do you do good clinical care while managing a very complicated healthcare environment, I think requires training, just like we train to do epigenetics or be a surgeon. You know, I've got a couple things I want to uh, tap in you. So you're a, a fabulous leader. I hope one day we won't have to say you're a leading woman surgeon, that we won't even have to say that word anymore because it'll just be you're a surgeon. But today, still, there's a lot of focus on, on women in surgery because it still represents something new. You know, and, and things are changing. I mean, what it looks like to be a surgeon is very different today and, and refreshingly and importantly different than it was. And then we see studies coming out. I want to talk about one group of studies first and then uh, th then another. But the, the first set of studies I want to talk to you about is the two studies that came out just recently that indicated that female surgeons, women surgeons, are less likely to experience complications and get better outcomes than men. And by the way, this isn't the first study. The first couple of studies that, that have shown this, 
And one of them was a study that was sort of broad-based uh, and large uh, that was in Canada with over a million patients. Another one was more focused in Sweden, which was focusing on on really on cholecystectomy outcomes. And, and so it was sort of more narrowly. The, the Swedish study showed really large differences, you know, and they had a lot of data to adjust for differences in case mix where the patient's different and all those sorts of things. The, the Ontario one found smaller differences, but of course it was also looking across a broader range of surgeries. You know, in my heart, I, I might imagine that, that this is true, that there are differences between men and women in their approach to medicine and surgery. And I just wonder what your reflection is on this, because these these differences are large enough to be important. And are they telling us something that's going on? Do you believe them? And, and how are you thinking about them? You know, interesting. It, those two papers got a lot of press from, you know, from many people. I, I think certainly I'm not going to argue with you with you on the validity of the papers. I'll leave it to the experts. Um, I think it's too soon to tell. Um, in some ways, my sense is there's a selection bias that the women who are coming into surgery understand that they are the first and many are the first. There's often a sense to pick people who will stay in the field. Many of us came into the field when there were no or very few women. It's changing rapidly. You know, this year's my intern class is 60% women. Amazing. Oh, my right? goodness. Wow, that's incredible. So I think it's a little too early to tell in that will women, are women inherently better surgeons? I mean, I can make up all types of answers, and I think we both could, all three of us could, that perhaps we may have more, you know, fine motor movement. Um, I do think there's lots of studies in other fields saying women are better listeners. Um, so maybe we pay more attention to complications. And in surgery, there's, of course, your technical skills, but what makes that makes a good surgeon. What makes a great surgeon is someone who prevents or addresses complications. So maybe these women surgeons are listening to their patients more and being better doctors. And But that's a hypothesis. I have no data to prove this, but that's some of my gut. I think some of it is just selection bias. Um, there's a flip side to this, which we need to remember. And I got to say it for my women surgeons. There's also been studies that when bad outcomes happen to women, they're penalized much more than the male surgeons. The male surgeons don't see any impact, but the woman surgeon sees a huge impact. So, you know, that selection, it makes you feel mm -hmm. more conscientious, more paying attention to detail. So, so perhaps there's some, you know, this is broader than just, you know, that we are better listeners. Perhaps we have to be because the consequences to those people's careers may be disproportionate. Radiology is notoriously heavily weighted towards men more than women. Uh, there are a lot of fields that are like that, and surgery was one of them. Uh, you just mentioned that your incoming class here at Yale is, I think, 60%. Um, are there any lessons that you've learned that got you to that point? Are there things that have worked for you to be able to recruit a more uh, gender parity class? We've changed this and, you know, when I first arrived here, we were lagging in our faculty composition behind the nation. Um, and then our, our residency classes were probably like the nation. We've made some efforts in being representing inclusion. So when they see that, then, you know, you know this, that it's, it changes. So our, my vice chair of research is a wonderful 
um, surgeon by the name of Paris Butler. We brought him from UPenn. And he has really talked about what a great school Yale is, what a great health system Yale New Haven Health is. And people resonate. This generation, the Gen Z, really, you know, lives by its values. So that changed it pretty dramatically. I hope we'll keep it up. Um, but I think, to me, the piece of representation is that our people, our patients are diverse and they need women, they need men, they need different gender, races, etc. So the more we do that, healthcare is needed by everybody and we need to represent our societal needs. And we try to do that. I think the other piece surgery has done, especially general surgery, which is my field versus say, you know, some of the fields like where orthopedics, where there's still, you know, my colleague here, Lisa Latanza, is, you know, trying to ensure that, is our leaders have also changed and have advocated nationally to bring more women into leadership. So that has made a big difference, not only here at Yale, but around the country. You know, I just want to lead into maybe a final question. This one's a kind of a tough one. You know, the, the you, I'm sure you saw that the British Journal of Surgery recently published an academic article that was titled Sexual Harassment, Sexual Assault, and Rape by Colleagues in the Surgical Workforce in How Women and, and Men Are Living Different Realities. This is an observational study in the National mm -hmm. uh, Health Service population in the UK. But but it almost undoubtedly is a generalizable finding across uh, countries. You're a, a remarkable leader in surgery. When you read something like that, I mean, how do we create a different field for the future? I mean, you know, how do we create a better future and a safer place for people to be able to become great doctors and surgeons without this fear of, of this kind of environment? Yeah, I mean, these, I mean, I, although I didn't read the study, this is not the first one, or I think I saw snippets of it, but it's sad, right? And this is where I think leadership matters. We have to pick leaders who understand that their job is to clearly lead by a North Star and hold their teams accountable. It embarrasses me, but I think sometimes healthcare has allowed certain people, maybe brilliant in other aspects, but have not paid attention to making sure that um, people feel respected, safe, um, and um, either because they're a brilliant surgeon, brilliant researcher, you can name this, right? So that um, is upon us. And, and as I stepped up to leadership, I have to make sure that I'm leading by those values. But as importantly, that when we pick our leaders, we're of course looking at our academia loves its CV, right? We have these massive curriculum vitae with pages and pages of our accomplishments. But that is not leading. That's about hmm. you as a person. So changing from how I advertise myself, but selecting someone who leads others with, you know, with those values about making sure that we are paying attention to um, harassment and inclusion and making sure all voices are represented is something that I would say I'm still trying to understand. How do I select people with those criteria in mind? So I study a lot of business literature to understand how corporations have done that. I think there's some signals there that we in academia and higher education can take that from and not just use the CV. The CV in my mind is, okay, it's good. Now let's see what do you do in managing those critical conversations when the rubber hits the road. And the last piece is you have to create a culture of safety. 
I can tell you when I was a resident or even a junior faculty, I was afraid to speak up and you're the only female to speak up takes a lot of guts. But our current generation absolutely speaks up for it. And as leader, I think it's absolutely our job, our duty to make sure we create those psychological safety beyond the processes that, of course, you know, the rules that you, know, you shall not do this. But then you have to make sure that it can actually happen. Otherwise, things happen in the shadows and you got to look in the shadows intentionally and make sure we stop this once and for all. Well, we, we just greatly appreciate everything you've done for, for Yale, for surgery, uh, and the advancement of really uh, patient care throughout the country. So thank yeah, you we're so, very we're much. We're so fortunate to have you here and so appreciate that you came on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. It's, a, it's, it's terrific to spend some time with you. Hey, that was just a terrific interview, Howie. I, I was so lucky to have her here. So happy that she came on the program. But let's get to your segment. Uh, what's on your mind this week? Yeah, so two separate articles in the lay press caught my attention uh, earlier this week, and they're related. One, Greenwood LaFleur Hospital, a rural hospital in the Mississippi Delta, is on the verge of closing, having already curtailed many services. And then separately, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston is potentially and likely changing hands, shifting from an existing relationship with the Brigham and Women's Hospital to a freestanding center affiliated with the Beth Israel Deaconess. And what these stories have in common is that medicine is a big business and it's only a sustainable business model if government vastly subsidizes the care of those less fortunate or you decide only to care for the more well-to-do. And that troubles me a lot. And I know it troubles you. Yeah. So are you saying that this Mississippi hospital, I know that it, it's primary, primary clientele is our poor black individuals living in Mississippi and that that's just not, there's no business model that works given that, you know, Mississippi restricts Medicaid. That's there's right. A, Mississippi right? didn't expand Medicaid. It's poor. You add these things together and you say to yourself, poor people who are disproportionately black in the Mississippi Delta are never going to have the fair shake that other people in this country have. And then then if you look at these large cancer centers, and it's not just in Boston. I mean, people are building new cancer centers throughout the country, even as the overall trend is to move patients out of the hospital and being able to treat them as outpatients. But because of the financial incentives that are coming out with the new cancer therapies who need to be infused within the hospitals, all of a sudden, these new hospitals are popping up. I mean, is that your point that, they're, that this is a real response? Oh my God, look, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute made $300 million in 2021. I don't have the 2022 figures, but I'm imagining it's in that same range. This is at the same time that Mass General Hospital and the Brigham are losing hundreds of millions of dollars. Yale New Haven Hospital is losing hundreds of millions of dollars. Like general healthcare in a hospital in an urban setting with a poor community is almost unsustainable now, but cancer care is profitable. I want to just ask you another thing, which is this this sort of uh, segmentation of medicine. I mean, the Brigham had been negotiating with Dana-Farber. They've had a long-term relationship. Brigham in women's hospitals, very famous hospital in the country, very prominent institution. They'd had a very synergistic relationship with Dana-Farber Cancer Hospital. And they've been arguing that we really shouldn't be splitting out a cancer hospital. You need actual to be integrated in with- yes all the other services, Dana-Farber. I know that they're going to be working with Beth Israel Deaconess, but it's going to be more of a 
standalone. I've seen this in orthopedics. I've seen this in cardiovascular. I mean, it's sort of like a culling out of the high profit centers exactly. and saying, you know, let's, let's not be part of the whole anymore. Exactly. Let's actually optimize the profits that can be, and we don't have to say profit, some of it's non-profit hospitals, but the margins that can be generated by when you just say, let us just do our stuff because the way that medicine is organized, this particular area makes some big, big margin That's right. profit. You know, depending. That's right. Is and that, if you start... Yeah, if you start carving out the joint replacement, the cancer therapy, the cardiovascular interventions, if you carve that all out, what you're left is is all money losing propositions. And and doesn't this relate also to the things you've been talking about around private equity? I mean, here these all become opportunities for for business to come in and say, let's just take this little narrow piece because Why it's not? a margin. And medicine was always built on this sort of, you know, transfer of profits in one area to Areas that were unprofitable, even the emergency department, pediatrics, a whole range of other That's areas right. that are essential, we but don't have that people, same sort of. Yeah. We counted on people to just do what was right. And, uh, you know, maybe that's not going to be enough. And do, where, where do you see this ending up? I mean, what's going to happen? I think this gets, unless somebody starts to really use very draconian measures, and the state of Massachusetts, for instance, could do things in Massachusetts, but it's unlikely to happen elsewhere. Unless you do really drastic measures, it gets worse before it gets better. And the only way it gets better, quite honestly, is if we start to put everybody on an equal playing field. And that requires some type of large-scale expansion of either Medicaid or Medicare and having everybody being treated equally. But until then, people are going to naturally go after the most uh, profitable patients. And that's not good for the vast majority of patients. So some people will say this is where we need Medicare for all or Medicaid for all and we need to expand our thing. But then, they'll, you know, the critics will look to the National Health Service and say they're falling apart. I mean, they've got a single budget. They're trying to manage the health care system. Docs are, 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 are striking, bolting from the system. Patients are complaining. Nobody's happy. How are we going to solve this? Well, look, the National Health Service of England operates on, on practically half the budget that we do on a per capita basis. So you could split the difference and we could still be saving money. I mean, the issue really is, do we believe that healthcare is something that everybody should have access to or not? And right now, we absolutely don't believe that. Yeah, I think that's the final thing for me about this, which is net-net. I mean, it's just adding to the inequality, the inequities, the disparities within our society. And because there is this piece of this as to if you've got resources, you're going to be able to get to these highfalutin places. You've got good insurance. If you don't, they're not looking for you to, to come there. And so, right? I mean, this is the... It's, it's, it's a problem. It's unsustainable. And we need to... I, we will keep coming back to this on the podcast, hopefully with some different examples and maybe some solutions in, in areas where it works. But yeah. it is very disappointing this week because that hospital in Mississippi is almost certainly going to close either in, within the next week or at least within the next few months. And we may have a dysfunctional government, but we can't give up on the idea that we need to actually improve healthcare. The healthcare reform needs to be reinvigorated because yes. there's just so many areas that, that need to be fixed. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how do we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on any of the social media platforms you use. <laughs> you're, cha you're changing the outro. I know, I know. But we're, we're also on Twitter or X. Yeah, we are, but I don't know if they start charging and I'm getting oh, increasingly yep. uh, concerned about it. But uh, yeah, if you do go to X, I'm at HMKYALE, that's HMKYALE. 
And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us, and we would love you to email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the Healthcare Track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs or check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. Now, if you email us, tell us about what we should do for our social media strategy. Health, Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Ines Gil and Sophia Stump, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Amazing week in, week out. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon. 